I want to read to us from the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to read for us verses 26 down through verse 31. You can follow along on the screen if you'd like. Verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They'll be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Karen and I used to watch a television show called Quantum Leap. Some of you may remember that. Its main character, Sam, was a young physicist who figured out how to travel through time. And so in each episode, he was traveling through time. But after the first experience of time travel, he realized he couldn't control when or where he would time travel next. So the show had him bouncing through time, trying to set right the things that had gone wrong in people's lives and in the world. The hook to the story was that on each occasion that Sam time-traveled, he inhabited the body of some person living in that place and time. The people around him saw the person they'd always known, but it was really Sam inhabiting this person's body. So Sam time-jumped into some pretty desperate situations. Uh, As the pilot of a supersonic jet, which he didn't know how to fly, as a prisoner on a chain gang, as a mafia hitman. So you get the idea. In every case, it would take him a while to figure out what was going on, to figure out what kind of story he was in. Was he part of a love story? Was he part of a murder mystery, an adventure story? Until he could figure that out, he didn't know how to proceed. So in one episode, he jumps into the middle of a sword fight. He he suddenly is in a sword fight somewhere in time, and he's fighting for his life, and of course he has no skill in fencing, His adrenaline's pumping. It looks as if he's going to die. And then he learns, and of course we learned with him, that the sword fight is taking place on a stage as part of a play. He's leaped into a stage actor. As that episode began, Sam thought he was in one kind of story when he was really in another. Or a better way to put it might be, he was in a story that was part of a bigger story. It was only after he figured out what that bigger story was that he knew what action he ought to take. When it comes to understanding the Bible, one of the most important things we can do is figure out what kind of story it is. Because it's our story. We might think this story is a quest, a narrative tale of the journey to heaven. If that's the kind of story we're in, we'll want to take action that conforms to our role in the story. But what if that's not the kind of story we're in? What if we've leaped into a different kind of story, not a quest, but a love story, 
then our actions won't quite fit with what's happening around us. We are characters in the Bible's great story, so it's essential that we figure out what kind of story it is. And if there are stories inside the stories of the Bible, and there are, we need to understand how they relate to each other, or we'll be fighting when we ought to be laughing, or we'll be repeating parrot-like the stage actor's lines when we're not even on the stage. Now, I said that the Bible is our story, and I meant that. And it's a great leap forward in a person's spiritual growth when he realizes that, so this is my story. But even more importantly, we must come to understand that the Bible is God's story. The big story is about him and what he's doing. We're characters in his story, not the other way around. So what is his story? Is it an adventure? Is it a comedy? A mystery, a war story? The answer to those questions is yes. But it's also, perhaps more than any of these, a love story. I'm not saying that's the only way to summarize the storyline, but it's helpful. Dave mentioned some this morning. Yeah, thanks for preaching my sermon, Dave. (laughs) Temple is one of the ways to summarize the story. Kingdom is one of the ways to summarize the story. Sonship is one of the ways to summarize the story. The Bible tells the story of the divine artist who loves his defaced creation so much that he insists on restoring it to its original perfection. Or you could say it's the story of the God who made earth to be a temple where the creatures he loves can know him and worship him with joy and gladness. Or you could say that the Bible is the story of a king whose beloved kingdom has been overthrown and who fights to win it back. You can look at the story from a variety of angles. You can look into the story through a variety of windows. But arguably, it's the door-marked kingdom that you can gain the best view of the whole story. For the next couple months through Christmas and beyond, we'll look at this storyline in the Bible, the story of the king and lover who at great personal cost is fighting to save and restore his kingdom. It's most apropos to ponder the story of the Savior King as we approach Christmas. Remember that on the day Jesus was born, the heavenly army's spokesman, or spokes angel, if that's the word, said, For unto you is born this day in the city of David, that is the city of the king, a Savior, And remember that in the days following his birth, Magi from the east came asking, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? Christmas is one of the riveting chapters in the story of kingdom come. But the story of the great king of Israel, and not of Israel only, but of the world and the cosmos, begins long before the baby is born in Bethlehem. That's why we need to go back to Genesis 1, to the beginning of the story, to tell it properly. Genesis tells the story of creation, of beginnings. But the creator did not create the stars and planets to hang them in space the way an artist creates a painting to hang in a museum gallery. Creation is what people today call functional art. God created planets and stars, including our planet, And he filled them with archangels and angels and humans and animals and creatures we know little about and surely some we know nothing about in order to rule them the way a king rules his kingdom. 
From the first, he intended to have an ongoing relationship with his creation. The relation not only of creator to creation or artist to masterpiece, but of king to kingdom. That's the story that you and I are a part of. To appreciate the beginning of Genesis adequately, we need to come to it with this in mind. The one speaking creation into being intends to rule over it. And further, he intends to employ humans as his representatives and regents. If we don't come to Genesis with this in mind, we'll try to use it in a debate about how creation came into being, which may be a necessary debate to have, but it's not what the author of Genesis had in mind. Neither the writer of Genesis nor his readers, until very relatively modern times, ever thought that the purpose of Genesis was to prove the proposition that the universe was created or to deny the opposite proposition that the universe just came into being. Genesis was not penned as a defense against 19th and 20th century rationalism. It's not that Genesis doesn't provide a defense against it, but if that's all we allow it to say to us, we've clapped a muzzle over its mouth. The author of Genesis was frankly not interested in answering the questions that people want to ask today about how matter was created, but he was deeply interested in who created it and for what purpose it was created. Genesis introduces us to the great God who not only makes matter, quarks and subatomic particles and atoms and molecules, all those things that constitute the physical universe, he builds a kingdom. That's what we must understand. That's what interested the writer of Genesis and what he wanted to convey to his readers. The first chapter of Genesis is about the ordering of a kingdom. In verse 2, earth is formless and void. Now, if you've studied much, you know that there are all kinds of uh, theories about how the earth became formless and void, and some of them are very interesting. But it's worth repeating that the author of Genesis was not writing with that concern in mind. He only mentions the formlessness of the earth in order to set the stage for the issue he wants to address, the ordering of a kingdom. Each excessive act attributed to God in the verses that follow that verse are about bringing order to the cosmos. Light comes out of darkness. Day is separated from night. Heaven is divided from earth. Water is separated from land. God is imposing form on what was formless. He's establishing order where there was only chaos. He's not only creating a world. He's building a kingdom which he intends to rule. And that's the ongoing story that you and I are part of. And he orders that kingdom by his word. He gives form to the formless. He establishes order upon chaos, and he does it by his word alone. He rules, and this is an important concept for us to understand. He rules by his word. By the way, the centurion, Matthew chapter 8, he understood that. Read about him sometime. He understood that God rules by his word. By his word, there's light. By his word, the sky is separated from the earth. And the waters are delimited by the land. 
He speaks a word and plant life and animal life appear. He orders and rules his kingdom through his word. Then we come to the making of man. The biblical word refers to humans, by the way, both male and female. So when you read man in the scriptures generally, we're talking about humankind. The making of man is not only a creative act, it is a kingdom act. Man is to subdue the earth and rule over its creatures. Man, male and female, is to serve as the steward of the king, ruling over creation with the same loving, joyful attitude as the king himself. Now that helps us to understand why God created man as he did, in his own image. Look at verses 26 and 27. So God created man in his own image, and the image of God he created him, male and female. He created them. Now go on. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature. In the ancient world, kings would have images of themselves erected and displayed across their lands. Think of Nebuchadnezzar and that 90-foot statue of himself he had made. And they would do that as a reminder to all those who passed through their kingdom that they ruled. God did the same thing. But he did it in a way no other king could. He brought his image to life. Human beings were and were intended to be the images of the king spread throughout the kingdom. They were to be images of his authority, but also of his goodness, of his gentleness, of his love. Now, I said that ancient kings displayed their images, but modern ones do too. Think of the gigantic pictures of Hitler that were displayed in the cities around Germany. Or in more recent time, the banners displaying the image of Saddam Hussein in Iraq or Kim Jong-un in North Korea right now. He has pictures of himself put up everywhere. Rulers have always set up images of themselves across their lands, but God's images were different. They not only represented him the way a picture represents an original, they represented him the way an ambassador represents his king. God's images were made to walk and talk and rule his kingdom. Genesis 2.2 tells us that on the seventh day, so six days God's been creating, on the seventh day he rested but it would be a mistake to think of that as the rest of weariness. God wasn't so tired from all his work that he needed to take a vacation. Don't forget what Jesus said about him in John chapter 5. My father is always at work to this very day. We hear that God rested from his work, and we get that fact. In fact, I think we impose on it thoughts about what our rest is like. We get the fact, but we might miss the point. An ancient reader would have recognized that the Sabbath, the seventh day rest, was not a vacation, but a completion. Order had been established. God's images had been endowed, endowed with authority to rule over his perfect kingdom as his regents. And everything was good. It was very good. I like the example my son Kevin uses to illustrate this. He recalls how Captain Picard the Starship Enterprise, so you know what I'm talking about? Captain Picard, the Starship Enterprise, would take his chair on the bridge. 
He didn't sit down with the intention of taking a nap, but of taking command. Likewise, when God rested from the work he had been doing, it was because he was ready to take command over all that he had made. And that helps us understand the fourth commandment a little better. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. When we observe Sabbath, when we rest from our work, it's always an expression of confidence in the God who reigns as king over the universe. We rest because we know that the good outcome of our lives and of the universe doesn't depend on our wisdom or our strength or our unceasing labor, but on the God who's seated on the throne and is in command. Okay, so picture a perfect kingdom. Order has been established. Everything is designed to work together. Animals and humans exist in harmony. The world is fecund and lush. There are no shortages. Neither humans nor animals live in want. There's no hatred or bigotry or competition or pride. The humans don't ravage the earth. They care for it. They govern it in peace. It's Eden. It's heavenly. It is to borrow St. Paul's words used to describe the kingdom of God in Romans. It's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But don't forget that the kingdom's also about power, the power to establish rule and order. And so this kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. The power's from God, but administered through humans, Adam and Eve at this point, who are his regents. And they're to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth so that God's image, the image of the king, will be displayed everywhere in endless variety and yet in authentic reproductions. That's what you were supposed to be. This is the way God made the world. An ordered kingdom full of righteousness, peace, and joy. And man, man was to be His image and likeness was made to be like God. They were to rule the seas and the air and the earth, to rule them, not ravage them. A good ruler doesn't destroy his own kingdom. He takes care of it. Like a good farmer takes care of his field and a good father takes care of his family. A good farmer doesn't use up his land to make a temporary profit. A good father doesn't use up his family to get ahead in the world or make himself comfortable. He loves and cares for his family. And that makes the disaster of Genesis chapter 3 all the more tragic. The earthly regions, the local rulers of God's kingdom, rejected their king and struck out on their own. They didn't want to rule under him, but alongside him. They wanted to be him. They wanted to be like God. The tempter says to them in chapter 3, verse 5, when, not if, but when you disobey, you do that one thing, the king is forbidden, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. So man, male and female, did the one thing they were forbidden to do. Now there are a million things they were free to do. There are a million joys available to them and a million decisions that they as rulers could make as they saw fit. There was only one thing forbidden them to do, and they did it. Their action was not an error in judgment. It wasn't a moral misstep. It was a rebellion. It was a coup. It was a rejection of the kingdom that God had ordered and a rejection of their place in the kingdom or 
worse yet, a rejection of God's place in the kingdom. Theologians speak of that rebellion as the fall. But humanity didn't fall because it was pushed or even because it tripped. It fell because it jumped or tried to jump across the great divide between creature and creator. Adam jumped and fell to his doom. And ours. Humans were the image of God, a reflection of his grace and love and beauty as long as they remained in his light. But as soon as they chose darkness, the image faded. They no longer reflected him. They decided to disobey the king and make their own kingdom, and the decision was cataclysmic. The kingdom of God retreated from the earth, at least in its previous form, and all creation was thrown out of balance. And it wasn't just humans who were affected by the fall, though they certainly were. God had warned them, on the day you do this, the day you disobey and eat of the forbidden fruit, you will die. And they did. The supernatural spirit in them died. Their connection to God's eternal kind of life was broken. But their relationship to the planet was also broken. They had been in perfect harmony with the earth. But now the ground was cursed because of them. That's chapter 3, verse 17. After the rebellion, nothing was the same anymore. It was the beginning of earth's great woe. St. Paul, reflecting on the meaning of kingdom come to the Romans, says that the whole creation has been groaning. See, creation suffered because it's been subjected to frustration and left to molder in the chains of decay. These things were never intended to be that way. It was never intended that humans should be without enough to eat or animals hunted to the point of extinction or pollution destroying our atmosphere. These things are the direct result of the coup that rejected God and his kingdom. That coup left humans divided from God, divided from the earth, and divided from each other. It left the kingdom of God on earth, though not in heaven, in retreat. The image of himself that God the king had placed in the world in the form of men and women had been cracked like a broken mirror and defaced. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Now, here's the thing that we must understand. The story of the kingdom come and the kingdom gone is our story. We're part of it. That's important to understand because we often turn things around. Instead of thinking of ourselves as having part in the ongoing story of God's kingdom, we want God to play a part in the story of our kingdom. But that's to follow Adam and jumping off the cliff, is to turn things inside out. We want, expect, and often we're taught to invite God into our story. We pray and we plead and we try to manipulate God into playing the role of fairy godfather or Merlin the magician or some such thing. We want him to protect us, to heal us, to make us prosper. Oh God, we plead, come into my story. Now, it's not wrong to want that or to ask that, but it's essential to understand, and this is what biblical repentance is about, that neither you nor I are the protagonist of this story. Our individual stories are part of a much bigger story than we ever imagined, in which God himself is the chief player. 
We'll never get things right until we see how we fit into this story and order our lives accordingly. People often agonize over the fact that their story is not proceeding the way they want it to. They're disillusioned and troubled and growing hopeless. And what's worse, they have no idea what to do about it. That kind of thing happens when we isolate our story from God's story. Imagine what would happen in Shakespeare's Hamlet if Horatio thought that he was the principal character of the story. It was all about him. He would be impatient with Hamlet. He wouldn't fulfill his duty to Fortinbras. When he was needed in one place, he'd be over in another. He would miss the important and satisfying role that he was meant to play because he was looking for some other one. Perhaps that's what you've been doing. If so, the thing to do is to bring your story into God's great story. I said earlier that you can look at this story from a variety of angles and that you can look into this story through a variety of windows. But there's only one door big enough to fit your story into God's story. Jesus Christ. Only through faith in him, confidence in who he is and what he's done, can you bring your story into God's great and beautiful story. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the only way. He's the one way that we can bring our story into his and make sense of our lives. If you've not done that, I want to invite you to do that. Bring your life, your story, into God's story. The way to do that is through confidence in Jesus. Let's pray. God, you know we're trapped. We're trapped in the way we see things. We want you and all others to serve our story. But until our story's part of yours, it's a tragedy. So God, help us. I pray that you'll grant us repentance. Help us to see, understand, have a change of mind about who we are and who you are. Lord, bring our story into yours. For the sake of the king and the kingdom. Amen.